0: Hi, I am Lynn Kitchens. I'm part of the teaching team here at Women in the Word. I'm so glad to be with you and continue looking at the letters in Timothy and seeing what Paul has to say to us next. Ah, It is a blueprint for us, Paul's words to Timothy, a blueprint for the church, which is the family of God. And I was thinking about family and God's family. Okay, how many of you have ever had a family portrait made? Probably most of us in here. Wasn't it fun getting everybody together? (laughs) Does your adrenaline start to go up remembering what that was like trying to get a family portrait made? The hair disasters, the makeup disasters, the clothes disasters, the children crying, the adults crying. This frustration of trying to get the whole family in the same place at the same time appearing to be happy (laughs) and happy to be there, Uh, the hope of looking like a functional family. Okay, so the final family picture that is chosen doesn't really tell the story, does it? Everybody looks pretty perfect in that final family portrait. But my wonderful daughter, Cassie, is a professional photographer. She knows the truth. (laughs) She's taken lots of family portraits. She knows what goes on before that. So I brought one of her pictures. This is a picture of the wonderful McCarthy family. Brandy and Ryan have been serving at the church for many, many years. We love them. Look at their family. They're so cute and we look at them and think happy, stable. They were all glad to be there. Okay, this is a picture you didn't see and they didn't choose. (laughs) <laughs> where they're trying to pull their kids up and make them be in the picture. There is no such thing as a perfect family, as we see where everybody does everything well. There's always some messiness in a family. And you know, this summer we decided we had everybody together in our family. We were on the beach. We were gonna take a beach picture We planned what we were gonna wear, we were all ready, and then we went to dinner to get the timing right. And then we just stayed too long at dinner. And Cassie said, hey, I don't think we have time to take the picture. It was our last night at the beach, we ran down to the beach, and then we ran like crazy people up and down the beach, trying to figure out where to stand. And of course, Cassie had a plan for taking our picture, but that went out the window. And then we looked for any unsuspecting people walking down the beach that would be responsible for our formal family portrait. <laughs> so, some poor young couple are enjoying the sunset on the beach when they are attacked by our family, handed a cannon, saying, take our family portrait. We didn't have a clue who they were. And then of course, everyone in the family begins to throw out their opinions, where we should stand, what we should do, what, what's the best lighting. That guy took two or three shots and then ran for his life we were messy. What about God's family, the church? What does God's family portrait look like? And if you attend this church, you will know that you will hear from the pulpit often that there is no perfect church. There is also messiness in the family of God. So if you had God's family portrait and you looked really closely at the people in it, you would see all ages, you would see men, women, children, you would see happy faces and sad faces, whole faces and broken faces. You would see strong faces, you would see weak faces, and if you took a picture the very next week, all those expressions would be changing. That's the church. God's family portrait is filled with wonderful people who serve and worship him, but they also happen to be sinners doing life in a fallen world. That's God's church. Till we get to heaven and worship God there, there will be some messiness here. So meanwhile, what is God's plan for his family portrait? Here's what it is. He wants people outside of the church to pick up that portrait and look at it closely and say, so that's what God looks like. That's what God looks like when they look at us. The picture of the church should be a picture of our God. And guess what? That will not happen unless we love each other, messiness and all, just as God loves us, messiness and all. Paul wants to give us some specific people groups today to love like that. You know, if you were a Christian in the early church and you were keeping company now with Christians, you were now separated from your old company and what all that involved. So when a Jew became a child of Christ, he was set out of the synagogue. He was no longer participating in Jewish rituals. If a Gentile came to Christ, he was no longer hanging out with idols doing pagan rituals. No longer were they doing that. So we can only imagine what it was like when these two varieties of people came into the church together and needed to relate to each other, to understand each other, let alone like each other. You know, we wonder if at the church suppers it was really quiet and they sat there silently. Awkward. (laughs) Awkward. I don't really get your world. You don't get what I came from. So for worship to be true, for communion and unity to be deep, for God to be reflected, love had to rule. So Paul says, let me tell you what love looks like in the church. Children in the church should display God's love to all these different people groups. The first one is different age groups. Chapter five, verse one. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And I really think this is one of the most beautiful passages about the church that you can find in the Bible. The church is a family of the fallen. We've all sinned and will sin on earth. Even so, Paul is saying, treat each member of the church family as you would treat your own family. So I thought about my family. What does it look like? How does my flawed family treat each other? And here's what I thought about. We're most authentic with our own family, most concerned. We share the most, we listen the most. We celebrate the most, we mourn. We honor, we encourage, we show grace, we show forgiveness. Sometimes we have to work on it, but that's our plan. We don't expect perfection. We think the best and we hope for the most for that person. We sacrifice and we help and we laugh together a lot. If we treated each other in the church the way we treat our family, we become a family of God. So first of all, Paul's telling the older men here that might need correction. Timothy, appeal to him as you would your dad. That's how you should approach him. Older men were to be confronted with honor and with gentleness. These were Old Testament and New Testament principles that God had put in place. Look at Leviticus 19 on your verse sheet. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's the plan when we approach older people. And then, how does Timothy and the church approach an older woman? We're supposed to treat them as we would our mothers, because there are treasures within an older woman that we need to open and we have to believe that. You know, there was a time in my life when I didn't think about my mom having treasures to teach me. And as a married woman, I realized that this attitude was dishonoring to my mom. And so I said, Lord, change my heart. Show me things to honor in my mom. I'm open to that. I want to do that. Soon as I prayed that, and I started looking for treasures, God showed them to me. And as soon as I saw them, I could appreciate them and express them back to my mom. And so now we have this better and closer relationship. There's a French saying that says, ah, if youth but had the knowledge, if age but had the power. But when there is mutual respect and affection between the younger and the older, then the wisdom of age can cooperate with the enthusiasm of youth and the church will be better for it. Together much can be done. You know, too often the young in a church don't search for the treasures in an older person and too often in a church the older don't expect that the young have treasures that they can share, but they do. So, what about he says when we look out at the church pew and we see our peers out there? Paul says, treat them like brothers and sisters. Don't be domineering. Nobody likes a domineering brother or sister. Don't be condescending. We shouldn't have that attitude. We should relate to our peers in the church, holding high the reality um, that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have different gifts, but we have the same holy goals to glorify and serve our Lord. And so as men and women relate to each other, Paul says it must be done in purity and that also protects the family of God. One person said this, there must be a fellowship of mind and heart between Christ's people, which is cleansed of lust. That's out there in the world, not in the church. And it should be rendered secure by the highest kind of mutual Christian love. I have people ask me a lot, maybe you do too, what makes Christ Chapel such a wonderful place to be? And I just throw out two reasons that I think of. One is God, Uh, but what I mean by that is I think God blesses Christ Chapel because all the ministries, all the leadership across the board is committed to preaching, teaching, and living out the true word of God, and I think God honors that but secondly I think of all of you I say the wonderful people that are at Christ Chapel they love God and they love each other they have that highest kind of mutual love and I love that you all are examples of it you all are doing that within your small groups caring and loving each other like like sisters would So there was a particular group of women that needed to benefit from the love of the church family. That's our next people group, and this is widows, women who had lost their husbands. And the early church really took seriously its responsibility to widows. From the very beginning, Acts chapter six, we see that the church was taking care of widows. Now in the Acts chapter six story, the Greek speaking Jews were complaining about the Palestinian speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked when food was being distributed. So remember I said, messiness in the church. There's an example of it, but what it does tell us is that they were trying to take care of the widows as soon as the church was formed. 30 years later is when this letter to Timothy is taking place. Lots and lots of widows in the church. So Paul wants to tell Timothy how to minister to them to keep the church from being overwhelmed while still serving them. And he does this by explaining the church's responsibilities to widows and family's responsibilities to widows. So first let's look at family responsibilities. Verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. I read someone who said the church would never have agreed that its charity should become an excuse for children to evade their responsibility. In God's economy, families have the first responsibility to care for widows. This is welfare as God intended it. And Paul says, this is pleasing to God. And then he tells you why. First of all, to learn to show godliness to our own household. Another translation said, to learn to practice piety in regard to our own family. So when God took his finger and wrote on a stone, honor your father and your mother, he meant it. This is showing godliness to our own household. And it's a huge testimony to the watching world who's looking in at the family portrait. Paul gives a second reason to care for related widows and he says, to make some return to their parents. And I kind of rephrased it, to demonstrate love honoring its debt to love. Love honoring its debt to love, only with love Can love be repaid? But we have to understand, did our parents love us perfectly? No. Do we love our children perfectly? No, it doesn't matter. We owe a debt to love and we should love. Paul says that the believer who doesn't provide for his relatives is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. First of all, he's worse than an unbeliever because even pagans in Paul's day honored their parents. Even going beyond that, Aristotle said, it is our honor to love our parents. To them, we pay the first and greatest and oldest of debts. We must do all we can do to minister to them, first in property, secondly in our person, and thirdly in our soul. More importantly, Paul says, when we don't care for our older parents or widows, our father who's alone um, that we are denying our faith and what he means by that is we are denying what the foundation of our faith is which is the compassion of Christ Jesus never expected us to receive his compassion but reject giving it to people we're the most responsible for look at John 13 Jesus says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And John says, in 1 John, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, so what if there are no children or grandchildren to take care of a widow? Then she's truly a widow in the sense that she has true needs. The church is her joy. The church is her help. Look at verse five. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Verse nine, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So the church honored the widow, who was truly a widow and we have them in our church today. So I hope you look for those women, enjoy the treasures they have to give you and meet their needs and spend some time with them. The word honor here means respect, but in this case, it also means financial help. So on this list of women getting respect and help from the church, were women that were all alone without financial and family support. They were women who had set their hope on God. They were prayers. They had to be 60 years of age. I read that was an age of retirement. The wife of one husband, that phrase actually means that she was not a promiscuous wife. It's actually a Greek word meaning a one-man woman. I've heard of a one-woman man. There's a one-man woman. She had a reputation of Christian character and good works, including raising children of faith or giving a home to children who are unwanted, which was pretty common back then. Uh, She was hospitable. If you were traveling back then and you had to stop at an inn, you were not very happy about it. They were immoral, they were dirty, they were run by pagans. Christians needed Christian doors opened to them when they were traveling and doing God's work. The widow did that. It said she washed the feet of the saints. And that's also a phrase talking about serving with humility. You all know that when um, people came to visit someone in their home and they walked those dusty roads in their sandals, the first thing would happen is they would come in and a servant would take off their sandals and wash their feet a very humble act. So it means serving with humility. But in this case, it could also mean that this widow did that herself. She liked to wash people's feet that came into her home. And it could also mean she used the word of God, which you can refer to as washing, to cleanse believers in their daily walk with God. This is a widow who served and loved God and his people. She also cared about people afflicted with illness and sorrow. This is a Jeremiah 49 woman. You probably read that verse. During a time of great distress, God said to the widows, let your widows trust in me. Trust in me. So the church was quick to honor the needy widow whose heart belonged to God. This woman blessed the church and was blessed by the church. So Paul takes one verse to contrast this widow with a different kind of widow, a widow who found herself hoping in her own selfish wants and desires. Paul calls her self-indulgent. He says she's dead even though she's alive. These were widows who used their widowhood to pursue sensual desires. Some people think some of these women might even have gone into prostitution. Paul calls these women dead or spiritually empty. They've turned their backs on God. They may not be placed on the widow list. They might use and abuse the church as they do their own body. They may seek to live off the church, but not for the church. Also not placed on the needy widow list were young widows, and we need to look at that a little closer. So look at verse 11. Verse 11. Refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Okay, Paul gives us two reasons not to put young widows on the needy list. First, the younger woman might be faced with desires for a new marriage partner. And this might overcome her dedication to Christ. We're gonna look at that deeper, but look what 1 Corinthians 7 says. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Paul is saying in this verse, if a young widow has set her heart on remarrying, we read that he said she would be abandoning her former faith, which is hard to understand. Here's what he means. The better translation is her former pledge. And that meant that she would want to set aside a pledge she made when she asked to be put on the widow's list in that pledge was probably a commitment to devote the rest of her life to serving the church and God. And then along came someone who changed her mind. Remarriage would break this vow and bring about condemnation. Now we know, uh, oh, it also, let me tell you this, it might refer to these women that had begun to marry some unbelievers Because their hearts were being ruled by their desires instead of their commitment to God. And so they were even marrying unbelievers, which would be unfaithful to her heavenly bridegroom. So Paul says, these women are straying after Satan and not their savior. Now we need to realize, of course, Paul is not criticizing young widows who marry. Because he tells them to marry in verse 14. Here's what he's finding fault with. He's finding fault in the widow in her spiritual decline in order to get a man. Walking away from what she pledged, walking away from the church, walking away and letting other things lead her life. Paul is not happy about that spiritual decline. Young widows must maintain their devotion to God as they plan for their future. That includes marriage, who they choose to marry, and how they choose to spend their days, which Paul just talked about that as well. That's his second reason he doesn't want young widows on the widow list. Here's why. If the church assumed financial responsibility for young widows, it might end up encouraging them to be idle but they've still got a lot of energy. So he says that they might um, give in to many evils that are attached to idleness, like gossip and becoming busybodies. Younger, less mature widows might have a hard time resisting these kind of temptations. And I thought it was interesting. I think Paul saw this happen because he says, I watch him go from house to house. These young widows that go from house to house, spreading gossip, wasting time. And I thought, well, in our country today, that can look like women coming by for a cup of coffee, but really coming for a cup of something juicy. That happens all the time. So Paul says to these young widows, remarry enjoy managing your household. God's blessed you to do that. If you can bear children, bear them. This will protect you from evils and protect the church from slander. I want to read a text that I received on Monday that I thought, what a great example of all these principles. A woman that's a widow in our church sent me this text. She said, I'm working on my lesson in 1 Timothy 5. I just bought a new car, and each of my kids helped me with this purchase. My son took me to look at cars and compare them. My daughter in law held down the fort, allowing my son to help me. My daughter took me to drive the car and helped me conclude what I should spend on the car. My son in law found a dealer and negotiated the deal via email and phone. And then the church helped. A couple came from the church with me that became advocates when I made the purchase. I also asked a man from the church ministry, Manpower, about a banking question related to my purchase, and he helped me and she said, the Lord does see me. The Lord has compassion on me and provides for me. Okay, those are widows. We've got another people group here, elders. How should the church treat their elders? I think that Paul was attributing quite a few of the issues in the early church in Ephesus, the difficult issues with some poor leadership. And so Paul wants to give him direction about proper leadership. Look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So when an elder fulfilled their duties, they could be compensated a little bit, but those who excelled and spent more time and effort in the church that were elders were to be doubly honored, given even more financial help, especially if they were preaching and teaching. And hey, what has been one of our main themes of Timothy? Protect the doctrine that's true, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. If an elder was devoting himself to that, the church would be growing strong and the church would be protecting true doctrine. Also, those elders who spent a lot of time might not have had any other employment and needed more um, honor in that way. Here's something uh, that's interesting. Paul quoted two scriptures to support his point. His first one, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, which means a worker must be able to enjoy the fruit of his own labor. That's from Deuteronomy 25. Secondly, Paul uses another verse. The laborer deserves his wages. Jesus said this himself, when he was sending his disciples out to do ministry in homes. Look at this on Luke 10. Jesus said, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. So I want you to kind of mark this in your Bible whenever you start to wonder, how do we know what parts of the Bible are um, ordained by God and inspired by God? Paul takes two verses here, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. He lays them side by side on the same level. And what did he call them both? Scripture. He calls them both scripture. He considered the New Testament writings to be equal authority as the Old Testament writings, which lets us know he sees them equally inspired by God. That's a great thing to hang on to, knowing what God's word is. Okay, he says, protect the elders as well. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul was very aware there's going to be opposition to the ministry and spiritual leaders. It's almost like they have a big target on their back for the enemy to try to come at them, to break apart the church. So the church needed to embrace how to handle those kind of accusations according to what God said in the Old and New Testament. If an elder is accused of something, the charge had to be backed up by two or three witnesses. And if not, then those charges were dropped because that was an attack by the enemy. But if there were two or three witnesses that gave testimony that was trustworthy, then the elder needed to be rebuked. Look at verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I urge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. So an elder who'd been found guilty of sinning in a way that was harming the church needed to be rebuked then in the presence of the church. And you can imagine this was a discipline that went right to the hearts of the family of God who were watching this happen to realize the seriousness of sin in the church. It also gave that elder the opportunity to repent and be forgiven, and loved by the church, and be back embraced, so it actually was a loving thing to do. Two dangers when we rebuke a leader, and Paul talks about them. First, there can be no prejudice about this sinner, no prejudice already against him. In other words, if you don't like someone, you might not judge the situation fairly. But the other end of the spectrum is the same too. If you really like someone a lot, you're not gonna judge the situation fairly. Paul is saying, prejudging, partiality, no place for that, get rid of it if you want God's spirit to be at work. And I thought it was interesting. This is so important to Paul that he implores Timothy in the presence of God. And of Christ Jesus and his elect holy angels, I charge you to keep these rules. It makes me wonder about Timothy. Remember, he's young, according to them in their time. Uh, Maybe he'd avoided confrontations with older elders. Maybe he was passive about it, or maybe he approached it incorrectly. Paul's telling them the correct way to do that. And when he says... I'm urging you in the presence of God, Christ and angels. He is urging him in the presence of these three, which are associated with righteous judgment. Judge righteously, Timothy, as God and Christ and his elect angels do. So then Paul says, hey, here's a way to avoid choosing elders that could bring slander in the church. Don't be too quick to appoint them in the first place. That gets us in trouble. Look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your ailments. That's sort of a little side thought. (laughs) which I don't have time to talk about, but I think you get it. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So what happens when the church makes hasty ordinations. They could be giving sin. It's like they're opening the front doors of the church and giving sin an opportunity to walk in and affect the church. In that case, those elders that open those doors, I mean, the people that open the doors to choose these elders are culpable for the sins of the elders coming into the church. If a leader took part in laying hands, which is how they anointed an elder, on an elder for um, him to become a leader, without lifting these same hands in deep prayer about this man, without seeking God's direction about this man, without joining hands with the other leaders in the church to counsel and pray over this man, then they shared some of the blame for future conflict that may have come into the church. Paul says to Timothy, keep yourself pure by not doing this. Keep yourself unstained by participating in the sins of others, by being connected to them in that way. And he tells Timothy some real great wisdom. He reminds him some sins are obvious. Some sins take a long time to come out. Some good works are obvious and some take a long time. Time is the key idea here. When you choose spiritual leaders, I love this saying, time and truth go hand in hand. Time and truth go hand in hand. We take our time, it's wisdom in every area of our life. Elders were to be loved in the church in all these ways. Okay, masters, this is a unique kind of relationship that Paul wants to talk about in the church, the one between masters and their servants. How should they approach each other, especially in the church? I'm thinking, talk about awkward at church suppers. What was that like? So, slavery was very widespread in the Roman Empire. They actually made up over a third of the population of the Roman Empire and the social and economic system relied heavily on the slavery system. They were not legally considered persons but were tools of their masters. They could be bought, sold, seized to pay a debt. Masters had virtually unlimited power to punish and mistreat them. So you can see that under normal circumstances, would a slave and a master be hanging out together? No. They didn't have outside associations. Christianity comes on the scene, undermining the evils of slavery, changing the hearts and the minds of slaves and the master. In God's gospel, the slave and the master were spiritual equals. Unbelievable. Look at Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So all at once, these two people groups, slaves and um, masters, were thrown together in a congregation and worked together in the workplace, and it began to change things in a good way. And I think... The fact that they heard and understood their new positions in Christ was in their head and probably took quite a long time to really get here when it came to the slave and the bond, the slave and the master relationship. And so Paul wants to address it here. And here he's talking to the slaves. Because do you think many slaves honored their master? I doubt it. I don't think they deserved it, probably in most cases. But before I talk a bit, I wanna do this. I want us to stop and realize there are many truths to be told in these next verses. I don't want us all to tune out and think, I don't know anything about masters and bond servants. If you know something about somebody in authority over you, these verses are for you. Authority in your family, your government, whatever that might be, your workplace, you can take these verses to heart. Verse Chapter six, verse one. Let all who are under yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. Okay, the first thing Paul discusses is all about having the right attitude. We need to view those in authority over us as worthy of honor to protect the name of God. I think these verse, this first verse has to do with unbelieving masters here. He says, honor them. And guess what? The word honor here is the same word that they use to say honor elders, So it's serious business. When we do this, Paul says, you are holding high the name of God and the teachings of God. So he's saying the attitude that we display when we're under somebody's authority affects how the gospel message we preach will be received. So I thought, okay, you can't be telling a coworker about God God is love, God loves you, God loves me. And in your next breath, put down the boss to that same person. Your message has gotten really twisted from here to here. Um, we can't go to a committee meeting with a lost friend having sharing the gospel in her life. And in our next breath, make fun of the person that's directing the committee meeting. It doesn't work. And he's saying the same thing here to the slave. You cannot now proclaim Christ and dishonor your master. Get your attitude right first. When we get our attitude right first, our actions will follow. So next Paul says, have the right behavior. Our social behavior should always be subordinate to our spiritual values. Our social behavior should always be subordinate to our spiritual values. So with the believing master, I could see how a bondservant would do this. He'd think, hey, we're both going to the same church. We're both loved by God. We're both equal in God's eyes. He won't care if I don't work so hard today. He's now my brother in Christ. Paul wants to address that. He says, yes, and that's the very reason you should be working harder for him because he's part of your family. You're both beloved of God. You both have the same father. And for us, he says, serve other believers well, because they are beloved by God like you are. That's sometimes hard to do. So let's see what Colossians tells us on how to do that. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. When we serve each other, we're serving Christ. This is God's family portrait. This is a church filled with a variety of people, with a variety of ministries, gifts, with a variety of needs. And we are God's children loving each other because our father told us to. So I want us to all look around a second. You're looking at your family portrait and then look up here and let's all say cheese. That's the family portrait. Look what first Peter says about us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. If we want to hang God's family portrait in our hearts, we have to choose to love everyone well. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We honor you. And we know that you love us each, and you have made us worthy of your love through Christ. We give you praise. Give us that desire to see each other as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, that when people look at us in the family portrait, they see God. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.